So last week, Karen spoke on the wilderness experience, but if we look at it more centrally, what Karen talked about was Jesus' provision that came to life through the participation of his disciples in the feeding of the 5,000 plus many, many others, because it only says 5,000 men, but there was plenty of women and children in that there as well. But now this week we shift from land and we move into sea. We move from God's provision, which is abundant as we know, to God's deliverance amidst chaos. And if you know anything about Aaron and when he comes up and does his little talks and stuff every now and then, I like to unpack stuff. I like to look into what's going in under the surface, although I guess we all do that in our own way. So I'm going to attempt to both clearly and concisely unpack for you what is some really interesting stuff, well, it is to me anyway, that will help us understand this scripture that we're looking at. And it's going to be from Matthew 14, verse 22 to 33, but that will come in a minute. Now, from the very beginning of scripture, and I'm talking about Genesis 1, verse 1, water in the Bible is often represents chaos. And now to add to this, when we look at the Hebrew word for water, It is mayim, and I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. But the Hebrew word for water is mayim, which comes from the root word mem, or mem, mem, that means chaos, which is an interesting thing just straight off the bat. And we see the use of water as a symbol of chaos and contention in many stories within the Bible, especially in the early Old Testament examples. But even now today, water is one of those most powerful forces to deal with in its natural state and even in a controlled way. And when we think about water and what it can do, you have to think about natural disasters at times like tsunamis and tidal waves. And you think of flooding and the effects of that. And you even, I also got thinking, you even need to consider the fact that water is the very thing, amongst some others, that can actually bring fire under control, which seems like such a devastating force. Even a riptide in the water at your local beach is something to be very mindful of. But going past the natural water in a pressurised state can also cut through virtually anything. And I've seen that firsthand. I know Karen has. We used to work and deal with glass at times. We went to a factory that they were cutting glass with water and all sorts. But it cuts through stone. And if you ask Karen, she has this love for pressure hoses high-pressure hoses and the capacity they have to basically rip through anything and clean. Um, But don't find out the hard way, don't shoot your toes with it because then you'll really experience the full force of what a high-pressure hose can do. Not Karen, probably more likely me. And in creation, this divide between water and land holds no mistake either. The fact that we have feet that operate on land far more naturally than in water, I believe, is probably by design. And so we have this inbuilt appreciation, this reverence, a fear of water because it holds such power and mystery within it. Even the most seasoned sea captain understands the need to respect the waters because it is by far in its very existence chaotic. You never know what you're going to get. For the Hebrews, mayhem or water or chaos, in its abundance and power is seen as the absolute power as chaos and in turn opposed to God's creation. The flood of water is the eraser to God's initial creation. So throughout the Old Testament, the moments of overcoming water are precisely the moments that then identify God's lordship, God's divine power being continuously demonstrated. 
and affirming God's victory over chaos itself. So here are some of these stories in the Bible, because I wouldn't just say that and not give you some examples, right? God controls creation and separates water from land, creating balance over chaos, the waters and the darknesses, darkness that existed, creating the cosmos. And when we look at the word cosmos, it just means the world or universe being regarded as an orderly, harmonious system. So God created harmony. Beautiful. Genesis 1 verse 2, that is. So that's right at the start. And this is the first nod to God bringing light to the darkness as well, which shines on some New Testament teachings. And I just love the Word of God, how it speaks in from the very start to the very end and never contradicts itself. This is the first nod to God bringing light to the darkness as well, which shows these New Testament teachings of Jesus as the light of the world. So where else? God makes covenant with Noah that never again would water cover the whole earth after the flood. So whilst the flood was actually used as an erasing of God's initial creation, God showed his deliverance to Noah and a way to bring about new amidst chaos. So God actually controlled the element of chaos to bring about new creation again. And here God actually uses, as I've said, chaos under total control to bring about new order. And another, God delivers Israel from the Egyptians at the Red Sea. We see that in Exodus 14. And in similar fashion, God grants the Israelites entry to the promised lands through the swollen river Jordan in Joshua 3. And in all these Old Testament things, God is constantly triumphing over the waters. In each of these moments of chaos, the divine intercedes and brings about victory. Cosmos over chaos, order over disorder. And so if we back it up all the way to the start, Genesis 1 verse 2. That backs up to the earliest stage in God's creation of the earth. And we read, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And a total of five words in verse 2 of our Bible describe chaos in the earliest time of history. And then further on, but not too further on, in verses 10 and 21 of Genesis 1, Two more phrases are added that refer to chaos, with the use of seas in verse 10 and great sea monsters in verse 21. Together, these seven words or these seven phrases are used a number of times in later scriptures, either individually or in combination to refer to some form of chaos. But to keep in mind that this original chaos wasn't evil either. God created it. God brought about creation in it. In fact, God called the seas and even the great sea monsters within Genesis 1, verse 10 and 21, good. Chaos only took on an understanding as evil when humanity fell into sin. In any event, we can trace these seven Hebrew words for chaos through the scriptures from Genesis to Exodus and the list of where these came from, Joshua, Proverbs, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and the minor prophets and Daniel all throughout the Old Testament. And then we look at the New Testament. So we're bringing in the New Testament now because it uses some of these same words, but this in in the Greek, for chaos. However, it shifts its focus, especially to the contrast, and I know you've heard us speak on this before, between darkness, which, again, pronunciation of Greek and Hebrew is not my strong point, but skotos, darkness, and light, phos or phos, 
and various other similar words that reference light and dark. So this light and darkness theme coming through, order, chaos, order and disorder. But it also uses C for chaos. And for example, here actually is where we look at today's scripture from Matthew 14, starting at verse 22. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It is a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. always like to put myself in those situations and just imagine what on earth would be going on in my mind in those situations. This isn't the first time that Jesus has calmed a storm either, because in Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41, when Jesus is already on a boat with his disciples, a storm rises up, causing the disciples to yet again panic. And my mind goes different places when we prepare a sermon or a preach. And I actually started to really wonder about these ex-fishermen. These, some of these disciples were ex-fishermen, by the way. Because I just wonder if they've completely forgotten how to even read the weather since Jesus had called them to be disciples. But then also in that, there may be some truth that maybe all their trust is being placed down a new path and they've fully surrendered to that. So there's some real interesting tangents to go down, but I'll stay on track, eh? So they wake Jesus up, who not only calms the storms, like Jesus, wake up, we're freaking out. And he's like, oh, dude, chill, it's all good. It's like he pressed the alarm clock button and said, that's enough on the storm, but he questions them on where their faith is at. And now repetition in Bible stories should actually point us to some realities within our own lives when it comes to where we are at in our own faith journey. The disciples are on a journey of personal ministry, but this goes hand in hand with the disciples being in a really heavy time of learning, of questioning, and obediently following Jesus' call to them to come. Yet here again, the disciples are afraid of the waters. Some of them experience fishermen. And even when they recognize Jesus, their fear is only calmed as Jesus steps into the boat and the seas then come to rest. Praise the Lord. This chaos cosmos theme doesn't stop with the old, all the Old Testament accounts. 
It can also be traced through, because I mentioned all those scriptures, uh, the books of the Bible from the Old Testament. But it can also be traced through Matthew, through Mark, Luke, John, Acts, all the letters like Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and so on, as well as in the book of Revelations, beginning to end. Order, disorder, victory overall through God. Right from the start, all the way to the end. The New Testament centers the chaos cosmos theme primarily in the battle between Satan, the prince of darkness from Ephesians 6, that references, and Jesus, the light of the world from John 8. So as Jesus approaches these disciples in their boat, or in the boat, and this is about, from what they reckon, obviously someone could have made this up, but about five to six k's out from land. So it's a fair, fair hike out into the ocean, fair swim, I'll say. Amidst rough waters, Jesus would say a fair hike because he can walk on the water. Yeah, no one? Okay, fine, whatever. Oh, far out. Amidst, tough crowd. Amidst, <laughs> I'm in chaos right now. Amidst rough waters, winds against them, we can assume that every impulse within the disciples would be of sheer terror and fear. They're already in a moment of panic and then they see a person walking on the water Inner chaos would have been very heavy amidst the present chaos all around them, I'm sure. So it's no surprise that the response from one of the disciples is, it's a ghost. It's a ghost. And then a collective crying out in fear. I'm not going to do the cry out. Thanks, guys. Great. There we go. I'm loving that. For the disciples, it didn't even click that a person could be walking towards them. It's like, it's got to be a ghost. Like, they could have been dehydrated or all sorts. I know they're in the ocean, but you don't drink that. They're freaking out. They're hyperventilating. They're hallucinating is the word I'm looking for. And they're thinking, this is a ghost. Because what they were seeing would have deemed impossible in their mind. Who could possibly walk through the wind and waves with such authority and such freedom? And so, again, my mind goes in many wonderful places. (laughs) Karen probably smirked just then. Putting it into a cartoon context, I could imagine the disciples yelling when they saw this moment, row, row, row to each other, seeing the paddles rapidly rotating through the water, boat just going in circles through this absolute panic, chaos written all over their collective faces, not getting anywhere, just out of sheer terror. But Jesus has a way of calming all of this. And what this tells us about Christ's triumph over chaos and his authority to deliver us from our own chaos becomes unmistakable. Just listen to the words that come from Jesus' mouth amidst everything that was happening. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Sit yourself in that boat. Close your eyes. Imagine that tumultuous situation, winds, waves, everything going on, ghost walking towards you, that then utters the words, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. In other words, what Jesus is kind of saying, it's me, Jesus, I've got this, it's all good, for once in your life, just trust me. It's me, Jesus, I've got this, trust me. And the Bible shows from start to end a clear victory of God over chaos. 
I'm using repetition as well because it's Genesis to Revelations. From the beginning of creation, cosmos, harmonious space, which mentioned earlier was the world or universe being regarded as an orderly, harmonious system over the chaos. The water and darkness that existed to the New Testament messages that touch again on creation through the use of light and darkness. And Jesus, the light over the prince of darkness, Satan. Cosmos over chaos, order over disorder, and it goes all the way to the cross as Christ overcame death. Amen. Hallelujah. End of life and brought about new life, exampled in his own resurrection. Ultimate victory through sacrifice over any chaos. And take special note that this biblical message remains consistent even whilst going through all of the contextual, historical, societal changes within just the Bible. From the time of creation to the time of the Israelites, to the birth and the life and the death of Jesus, and then to the time after Jesus' earthly ministry, now led through the disciples and apostles all the way through the revelations, there was so much change even in society back then. But the biblical message stayed true. We know this balance between good and bad. We probably get taught some essence of that as we're growing up. Light and dark still exist today. We see it in our absolute everyday lives. We hear it on the news. And so as chaos existed to disrupt order, we can also take courage and not be afraid if we choose to accept that Jesus is still saying today, it is I. It is I. Because to this day and for always, he holds the authority over chaos. So if one is true, then so is the other. So we should stop doubting it. If one is true, then so is the other. To establish that the world we live in has already existed with chaos, we must also acknowledge that God has been at work since the start of creation through his authority and his power to deliver us through and from that chaos. So when we try to escape the dark bits of life by our own devices and we try and fix it ourselves and I've been there, it is still God who holds the torch for us and asks, do you want me to turn this thing on or do you want me to leave it off? On or off? And so what does our response become? I'm going to read verse 28 and 29 again. It says, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, if it's you, a person walking on the water, if. Tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. That whole section starts with Peter questioning. Lord, if it's you. And then proceeds with what could be described as a challenge. Lord, if it's you, prove yourself. Show me personally a miracle. Tell me to walk on the water to you. And even though the guy is right there, walking on their existing chaos, coming out on that water towards him, already proving it can be done, the water in front of all the disciples, Peter feels convicted to challenge Christ. And how does Jesus respond? Isn't this proof enough? You can't be serious. What more do you want? 
Is that what we read? No, it's not what we read because Jesus simply and immediately says, come. Jesus responds to Peter's challenge, come. Why? Because Jesus understands our life's conflicts, even conflicts of faith, but that never changes the invitation from him of come because that will always be there. Jesus does not stand in the way even for a second to offering the invitation for Peter to put his faith in Christ and says to Peter, come. Jesus wants to encourage relationship with him. Jesus wants to example to those of little faith in verse 31 that they can trust in him and their faith will be rewarded. We need to draw close to Jesus. We need to place our hope and our trust in him. We need to take everything to Christ, good, bad, ugly, everything. Our questions and also our challenges. We need to get into proximity with Christ and accept him as the authority over our life. And so verses 30 to 31 say, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and we're talking about Peter, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? So what changed here? What changed for Peter? Because Peter confidently asked Jesus to prove himself. And at first Peter took the invitation to come and was walking on water to Jesus. And what did the little guy say on there? This is awesome. So what happened? The storm was there the whole time. The water was under Peter the whole time. And Jesus was there saying, come. So what happened? Peter's focus shifted from Jesus. Peter's attention was drawn to the chaos rather than remaining on Christ who controls all chaos. The victor over chaos since the first verse of the Bible, Peter began to doubt and he looked away from Christ. He became distracted. But just before we enter verse 31, Peter cries out a three-word phrase that Christ is longing to hear all of us say. And it's not the, the girl looking for the boy to say, I love you in high school or anything like that. It's, Lord, save me. Good work, Barry. Lord, save me. Because immediately Jesus responds. And that is important to hear because we all experience, I'm sure we have all experienced inner guilt or a shame or even this doubt where we feel like we've lost faith or our faith isn't good enough. The enemy might think he has a hold over us at that point, but here's the thing. Jesus immediately, when he heard Peter say, Lord, save me, reached out his hand and brought him to safety. There was no guilt trip. There was no punishment for Peter's moment of doubt. No guilt trip, no punishment for Peter's moment of doubt. Because as soon as Peter called out in the chaos for Christ to intervene and to help, Christ was there. So when Jesus says in verse 31, you of little faith, why did you doubt? We see more of Jesus' teaching coming out. It isn't a criticism. It isn't a complaint Jesus is having with Peter. It's teaching. It's a teachable moment. And so two weeks ago, when I spoke previously, we talked about the mustard seed and the yeast and some other things, right? And the power of little faith. 
And that is what Jesus is referencing here. Little faith is not a handicap. It's enough if used to see amazing things happen. Jesus is saying, with the faith I know you have, what happened, my friend? With the faith that I know you have, what happened? This isn't saying don't look to strengthen our faith either. I'm not saying like, oh, if you've got a little bit of faith, that's, an, that's enough, settle on that. We need to grow in our understanding of who Jesus is to us daily. And I love the reference of Christ as the author as well, because it speaks into the world that he has inspired many to form as the very tool we need to understand him more and more. And that tool is the book of the Bible. So read it. So of any chaos that we have going on in our life, when we feel that we can't get on top of things, or maybe we're just living complacently and the little faith we say we have doesn't yet translate to prayer or reading his word, take heart. It's not to say don't extend our practice, but take heart. Because Jesus says to us in those moments, in our conflicts of our own faith, with the faith I know you have, what's happening, friend? With the faith I know you have, what's happening, friend? He wants to guide you back to those deeper practices of faith. He wants to help you out of your rut and out of your chaos because he holds victory over that. Our God has been conquering chaos since verse 1 of Genesis. He has claimed victory over creation and over all darkness. And in today's story and all throughout the Bible, the water as a metaphor of chaos or as a symbol of chaos is always counted and defeated by the hand of God in every single situation. So the question is, if you're experiencing chaos in your life, if you're experiencing disorder, maybe you feel like your belief in Christ is real, but your actions of faith are somewhat lacking, that your worship and your devotions look more like routine than relationship, when we lose faith and hope completely and go into a place of self-shame and guilt, when we can't recognize Jesus in our day-to-day, know this one thing. God wants relationship with you and he is waiting for you. With the little faith he knows you have, to say those three words that Peter ushered, Lord, save me. Order over the chaos. Lord, save me. And if we generally want that for ourselves today, then it just involves a commitment to saying those words within your own heart, within your own mind, or to someone you trust alongside you, and calling out those three words today. Lord, save me.